Bibles or devices to um, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 and um, find verse 24. While we're getting ready, I just want to uh, thank those that came uh, with me to the uh, Somebody Cares Tampa Bay Gala, annual gala last night. We had an awesome time. And uh, Colonel Allen West was a guest speaker. And, uh, of course, uh, Colonel West is always dynamic. He's inspiring. And um, it was good. So thank you for your support. Thank you for, for supporting Somebody Cares Tampa Bay with your presence. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years or grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. For he had respect for the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as if by dry land, which the Egyptians attempting to do were drowned." You know, the life of Moses is an inspiring story of how progressive faith advanced an entire race of people. These verses that I just read contain a six-step progression of faith that we must all take if we're going to advance through our lives in God and inspire others along the way. Faith was never meant to be a static belief system. Faith is a progressive thing. Faith is for people that are constantly growing. In fact, if you truly receive the faith of God, as the Holy Spirit installs it into the heart and the life of everyone who receives Jesus, that faith will always prompt you to grow. It's progressive. And these six steps included in here are faith, refused, choosing, esteeming, forsaking, enduring, keeping, and then passing. They passed over. It begins by telling us, by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, when he was not growing up, when he came to years, when he grew up, by faith, when Moses was come to years. Entering the path of progressive faith begins with a decision to grow up. We really don't begin to grow up until we begin to enter and take our first steps into that life of faith. That's, that is the starting point of going from childhood to adulthood. There is a time in your life and my life 
when we come to years. And you know, whether you grow up at 1828 or 58 or 78, some people <clears throat> never grow up, but <clears throat> no matter when that time is, coming to years or growing up isn't a numerical destination, it's a moral destination. It's not something you arrive at just simply because you've stood around in your life for a certain number of years. It happens when you make a decision, a moral decision, to grow up. Growing up really begins with the decision to change, embracing the responsibility to change. And when you think about it, as sinners, and a sinner is someone who's separated from God, they're lost. In the sinner's life, if you will, oftentimes whatever growing was going on stops by the time they hit whatever adult age it is that they become adults. And really that's so unfortunate because we should be growing and actually in an accelerated way exponentially throughout what we call our adult years. So growing up begins with the decision to change, to embrace change and the responsibility to change. You know, the very first thing that Moses had to learn was that being desperate for change isn't what faith is. You're not in faith just because you want change or see the need for change. That's not what faith is. Surrender to God is faith. It's not until you've done something about the need for change. Because changing what's wrong starts with joining what's right. And we love to talk about change every four years. Everybody's bustling about talking about change and who we're going to vote for that's going to change things for us, change the world for us. But the, re the truth is, the real truth is, you look at 6,000 years of human history and what has changed, you know, other than some few witty inventions and uh, knowledge has changed, but morally, as beings, have we as a human race gotten any closer to God on our own without God? No, absolutely we haven't. It could be argued that maybe at times we've gotten farther away in our darkness. So the reality is, is that there is no change that takes place until you join what's right. You can't simply keep standing in the same place wanting change and then wearing that desire to change or the desire for change as some kind of moral badge of honor and, and call that faith. That isn't faith. Faith is when you surrender to God. And a couple of verses to help support this idea. One is in James, you're probably familiar with. It says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Then draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Um, let's see, another one. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live by the dictates of your flesh, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So notice and remember that I said, change doesn't begin until you join what's right. And so Romans really brings that out when it says, through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. If there's things in your flesh that need to change, 
if your marriage is in conflict because there's idiosyncrasies in your personality or your desires happen to be skewed in a particular direction that keeps opening the door for stress and strife and difficulty in your life. You know how some people are always running around talking about, oh my God, my life is on fire. But they lit all those fires themselves, you know. Um, but they're always pointing to the world. Darn it, you know, every time I go there, this happens to me. Um, but the reality is, that if there's things in your life that you need to put to death, there's no way that you can do it yourself. The Bible says through the power of the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of So you have to join what's right. So that scripture starts out by saying, by faith, when Moses came to years. Faith did not become something in Moses' life until he got to a certain point where he had come to years. He had come to a certain level of maturity where he realized things need to be different. So coming to years and beginning to grow up starts by realizing that the world isn't going to change itself for you. So progressive faith, and this message, by the way, is a two-part message, part one is going to be this morning. We'll look at the first four steps, and then next week, part four, we'll look at five, six, seven, and eight. So this message is called Progressive Faith. That sounds like a pretty good title to me. Progressive Faith begins as a commitment to change yourself into a person who lives by faith. That's the day you start growing up. As you decide, rather than being a person who lives by the opportunities or the things that the world dangles in front of me, or the things that arise in my flesh or in my imagination, rather than let those things dictate my life and pull me here and there and, and define me, I am deciding that I am going to live by the vision of faith that God sets before me. I'm going to be a man of faith or a woman of faith. And that is the beginning of progressive faith. Because the world's not going to change itself for you so you have to seek change within yourself. The second step is really the first big step on that progressive path of faith. And it says, Moses, when he came to years, when he came to that age of awareness, whatever you want to call it, um, it says he refused. He refused to be called any longer the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So your first big step on the path of progressive faith is a negative decision, not a positive one. The first thing we deal with in this walk of faith happens to be a negative element. Moses' forward progress didn't begin until he refused to continue pursuing his familiar course in life. He refused to be called. He made the decision. Now listen, there was nobody in his family, there was no one in Pharaoh's court, certainly not the Hebrew slaves who he was going to at some point in the future lead into deliverance from slavery. Nobody was calling on him and asking him to elevate himself by refusing to stay any longer in the place he was in. All of this came from within him. Not without, he didn't walk into a church somewhere and somebody gave him a message and, and he responded to it. 
Those promptings that bring us to the place where we refuse any longer to stay where we are come from within. And that's why we have to be so careful not to suppress and deaden that conviction that speaks to us. The first critical step, this refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about the connection there. He had this great life of privilege. He was fished as a baby from the waters of the Nile, having uh, escaped certain death and had this wonderful life, and he's now <laughs> denying it. He's now turning his back on it. He sees something better. Doesn't know what it is, but he sees something better, senses it. And so he takes his first step by refusing. So this first critical step must be complete. If not, you won't have progressive faith. You'll have frustrated faith. People that don't make this step of refusing to separate from the daughter of Pharaoh um, always have frustrated faith in their life because uh, their, their efforts are constantly in conflict with, in competition um, with the claims of the world and double-mindedness, looking back, looking forward, looking back, looking forward. That's not progressive faith. That's frustrated faith. So a lot of times Christians will say, oh, I need some, I need counseling, I need encouragement. Um, but what's really happening is that they're constantly being pulled back. They've never really made a clear, clean refusal. I'm not that old person. I leave it behind. Now, you can't help the fact that from the the closet of the dead, your old man's going to call out to you and talk to you. Sure, of course that happens. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you and I not making that decision to say, I'm leaving this identity behind and I'm stepping forward. A tremendous example of this is found in the book of Hebrews, a couple of verses. It talks about all the great people of faith that we have the stories in the Old Testament that, that describe their lives to us. And so listen to what the author of Hebrews says about those that had lived lives and died in faith. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen the promises up ahead, afar off. They were persuaded by them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those that say such things declare plainly that they are seeking a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, if they'd have been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had the opportunity to return to it. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. There is a city. There is a better country. There is a better life. So go ahead and throw away your old identity as the son or daughter of Pharaoh's daughter and set out. Take that first step of refusing. You can do it. It's worth it because God has set that better country. And remember that it says if they'd have been mindful of that country, they would have had the opportunity re to return. 
Pilgrims of faith always refuse to settle where they are before they ever inherit where they're going. Think of the pilgrims that first came to America. They collected up what meager belongings they had in this life and their children. They piled into those little boats and they pushed off from the shores of Europe. They refused. They left nothing behind. But they didn't see the reality that was before them. By faith, they set out to have a new life. That is the difference between a pilgrim and a vacationer. And so this is why Christian vacationers don't have progressive faith. They have believism. They learn the theology and the mechanics of faith, and they just try to get ahead in life with God through believism. But it takes true faith, pilgrim faith. Let's go to this third point. The Bible says, after refusing, by faith, he starts out, and after refusing to remain identified with Egypt, he chooses, rather, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So choosing is the third step in progressive faith. You know, the most important decisions or the most important choices in life, especially when it comes to moving forward in progressive faith, are usually unappealing and harsh and hard. Think about it. When you think about choice, the world always says, my goodness, don't choose something that's hard. Choose something that's easy. Choose something that's uh, delightful. Choose something that, uh, you know, is... is uh, you know, going to instantly gratify you. But the most important choices in life usually begin by choosing, or excuse me, choosing things that are hard, things that are unappealing. But we know those choices need to be made if we're to move forward. And it's because in this universe that we live in, our way forward in God is always going to be impeded. There's always going to be a devil that's going to impede your forward progress in God. So you make this good decision. I'm not going to be called a, a, um, a dependent of Egypt. I'm launching forward in God with progressive faith. And the first thing is you run into opposition. So you choose to embrace the opposition. I'd rather embrace the opposition and move forward then avoid the opposition and wait till a better deal comes along. Anyone get kind of what we're talking about? Wise people know how to choose against the current rather than sit, simply drifting downstream into what naturally comes easy. We make choices against the current. We're like the salmon. You know, they've, they've got this duty sense that's driving them. They're hopping up that water ladder. Jesus chose the cross. He embraced it. He chose the cross. And he did so against that natural part of his will that said, Father, I would that this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus chose the cross, and so must we. If we don't choose the cross, we forfeit the resurrection. But we know the resurrection is real because he is living inside of me. I know that everything about my life will one day experience full and complete resurrection. 
because I know the risen Savior lives within me. I mean, I know that personally because I went from an absolute 100% atheist, heathen, barbarian, that didn't know anything about God in a flash, in a moment of, a, of time, in my bedroom alone one night, I became a Christian, met Jesus. In under two minutes, that transformation took place. So I know that he lives. And John chapter 14 says that Jesus made this statement, because I live, you shall live also. Sometimes I have to remind myself, because he lives, I know that I live because he lives in me. So people who choose against the current do so rather than drifting into what comes easy downstream. Jesus chose the cross. We must too because that's the way to the resurrection. And the greatest blessings come from choosing what we need over what we want. God knows what we want. He designed us. He created the hunger that is within us. And those hungers are not sinful. They're not evil. It's what we do with those hungers that becomes evil. The pride, the lust, the greed, but the desire to elevate, the desire to belong, the desire to excel, the desire to be at peace. And let me say the desire to be prosperous. None of those desires are wrong. God created the garden. He put man in it, and it was a very prosperous place. God did not create a situation of lack. He created an opportunity of abundance. All of those desires are right, but what we do with those desires and how we pursue them and the order that they take in our life, that's what becomes either good for us or bad for us. And so the greatest blessings come from choosing what we need over what we want. God knows. He knows what we want. And if we choose what he says we need, we'll get what we want. Praise the Lord. I see some heads nodding, and that's good. Praise the Lord. I'm going to share one more of these steps. So after beginning, deciding to grow up, in faith, and then refusing to be called Pharaoh's daughter. I'm not going to be a dependent of Egypt anymore. And then choosing rather to embrace whatever hardship comes with that decision. I choose it. I rejoice in it. Comes this fourth step. It's how he was able to choose those hardships over the easy life in the world, and that is esteeming. Everyone say esteeming. Esteeming has to do with understanding the value of a thing. It's how you estimate. If you have work done on a house, you ask for estimates, and you compare those estimates, right? It's how you value. The person who writes up an estimate considers the materials, considers their time, the worth of their time and their energy, and that all goes into the estimate. And you have to be good. A business, a good business with talent could be ruined by bad estimates. If you don't have a person writing the right kind of estimates for your business, 
It doesn't matter how talented or good you are, you'll fail. But you can succeed. You can succeed even if you're maybe not as good as you should be. You're still in that curve, you know, learning and developing. But if you can write a good estimate, you know how to do that. You know where values are at. And you can estimate properly, you'll succeed. You'll be successful. It says that Moses, esteeming the reproach of Christ to be greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, because he had respect for the recompense of the reward. To move ahead in progressive faith, you must learn God's value system. Christians must learn God's value system. I'll tell you what, whenever I find Christians that are struggling, usually what's going on, and I'm not talking about trials struggling, I'm talking about not getting traction. They're not going anywhere. I accepted Jesus three years ago. How come, how come my life hasn't changed? Nothing's going on. I'm not getting any closer to God. At the root of that is never the answer to that problem is God doesn't love you, God doesn't care about you, or God hasn't made himself accessible to you, or put before you what you need to move forward. At the root of it, almost invariably, is somebody who is not esteeming. They are not calculating the values of God. They don't spend time in the Word, looking at the richness of His Word and His promises, the treasures of walking in Him. As we meditate upon the things of God and get into the Word of God and let our mind begin to stream with the truths and the wisdom of God, it, it opens our eyes to the wealth of what God has put right before us. How can you believe God for something you haven't meditated on, thought about, and let God's Word describe to you how wonderful and how vast it is? You'll always downgrade what God can do for you. If you can't calculate the worth of following Jesus, you're not going to be a Christian. You're not going to actually take up your cross and follow Him. Many Christians are starving or drying up on the vine because they will not put in the time to esteem what is valuable in God. My wife, many, many years ago, um, would always say, and I know Kathy won't mind me saying this, she would say, I have such a hard time memorizing scripture. But there came a point in her life where it became a necessity. And she, and she started getting notebooks. And she started writing all those verses out. And she started rereading them. She started journaling. And once she started journaling, and once she started recording those verses and the little insights, took the time, disciplined herself, didn't just say, wow, that's a great thought, because you know you'll have a great thought, and what? An hour from now, it's gone. I always try to carry something I can write. Thank God for these little devices. You can just speak into them. You know? So I text myself. Do you text yourself? Yes. I text myself all the time. I'm driving in the car, what am I going to do? I can't pull over and write notes. I'm on US 19, I just text myself. Thoughts that the Lord's given me, I just you know, put that, hit that button and I just start talking to myself. And then I can just 
listen to myself talk back later. What am I doing? I'm esteeming. I'm studying. I'm, I'm breaking down and getting a handle on what's valuable in God. Because that discipline that Kathy took to write those things out, now she's got what we call the reading chair. No one's allowed in the reading chair but her. And I remember when our youngest granddaughter, now 20, about to turn 21, um, was living with us at the time. Shelby, uh, uh, Iris was what, Kath? Four, maybe? Three or four? But when she walked across with the blanket, said, meet me in the... Yeah, she's two years old. Early, early in the morning. Kathy gets up, oh, dark 30. And she's in the reading chair. You just see the glow, you know, little bitty lamp. And she's got... That reading chair is covered. If you could see it, I should send a picture to everybody. It's covered with no, not a notebook, notebooks. Several of them. And they all got little tabs, color things sticking out of them. And she's got whole calendars filled with revelation and things God's shown her. And sometimes I would look at it and think, well, you know, what are you knocking yourself out for? I mean, you don't have to get up and preach every week or teaching Bible. You know, what, what's all the study for? And see, that's the mentality that we have. What are you doing all that study for? Because I need to esteem what's valuable. I'm running a race. I, I am living by progressive faith, and I'm not going to get there if I don't learn God's value system. So one morning she was, she was uh, in the, I, I think she was in, in the room where the reading chair is, and, and uh, little Iris walks by, two years old. She's got her dragging her, her gibby behind her in the dark, and she was walking across the house, going somewhere to the bathroom or something like that. And she turns and looks, just turns her head, looks over at Kathy and says, meet me in the reading chair. <laughs> she, she knew that's where Kathy's going to be. She's going to be in the reading chair. You, know, you, you develop these habits, these systems. And that was years ago. Iris is now almost 21. And she's still in the reading chair. Kathy's still there. And the books are piling up. Piling up. Esteeming. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ. You see, at first glance, the reproach of Christ, you'd pass it up. Who wants that? Who needs that? Who needs to be downgraded? Who needs to be called names? Who wants to face a public that's not going to embrace you and probably reject you? Why would you want the reproach of Christ? At first glance, you see no value in it. You have to look a little deeper to see the value in it. You ever wonder why Jesus spoke in parables? He took these profound truths and then he put them in these very simple little parables, like little candy shells. Because if you weren't interested enough to break the skin on that parable and dig a little deeper, then you weren't ready to receive what was inside. And so Jesus said to his disciples, they said to him, why do you always talk to us in parables? Why don't you explain, and the people, the people out there you talk in parables, why don't you explain to them like you do to us? He said, and this seems harsh, but Jesus said, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Because he was making the statement, they are just passing by 
you know, they just want the quick, easy blessing. They don't want to work for anything. They don't, they're not looking to make a commitment. I'm just something that's exciting in the moment. You understand what I'm saying? But, but those tremendous nuggets of wisdom, God's not coy. He's not being evasive. He knows that what you're not going to buy into, you're not going to pursue. You have to esteem the value of it. Otherwise, you'll just take a bite of it and go, oh, that was all right, on to the next thing. So, the reproach of Christ is bitter. Nobody's going to choose it unless you see the value that's in it. You need to calculate the value of following Jesus and following the things of God and then weigh it against the offers of the world. The Apostle Paul did in his life, and this is what he said about it in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He said, the things that were gain to me, those things I've now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And you know what? I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. There is esteeming. <coughs> Excuse me. Moses changed his reward that he sought because he made the estimation of the worth of God's favor to be the most important thing in his life. And the estimation of the worth of God's favor made the wealth and power of Egypt cheap and worthless by comparison. But you and I are going to continue to pursue the worthless things of the world that just simply turned to dust, the fear of man, uh, pre, you know, the, the acknowledgement of others, and all these things we chase through life that, think <clears throat> that we think are going to fill, <coughs> excuse me, fill and elevate us. We're going to just keep cha uh, chasing these things um, that are worthless, really, in the end. And by the time we figure out they're worthless, we're either on our deathbed or we don't have enough strength to do anything le left to do anything really about it. Who wants to be, you know, why is it that you go to Publix and sometimes, usually not always, but sometimes you see that elderly person, they're just cranky, crabby. Nobody here, but uh, they, and there's no particular reason. They're just ticked. They've lived a life where they realize now They've been chasing and pursuing all the wrong things. And now they're not happy. And now they're coasting towards that doorway to eternity. It's a horrible thought, isn't it? Think about it. If you don't want to end up in that kind of a situation, learn to esteem the things of God and set your course accordingly. Esteeming the reproach of Christ to be greater riches let me tell you, the world is always going to downgrade you as a follower of Jesus. Know it. The reproach of Christ, the world is constantly going to persecute you, downgrade you, and uh, just kind of X you out, persona non grata. But you, as a person of progressive faith, you need to keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus did. Jesus didn't let what people thought about him 
uh, uh, deter him from the prize that was set before him. And Hebrews describes it by saying, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, who was the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who built progressive faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the developer, the perfecter of, of progressive faith. For the joy that was set out before him, he endured the cross and disregarded its shame. And he has now taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So I want to leave you with this thought. That joy that was set before Jesus was out beyond the misery that he saw standing right in front of him. He saw the misery of the cross and the horrible and painful ordeal he was about to endure. Certainly, that was not something to embrace, but he knew he had to choose it because of what was beyond it. And the joy that was set before him, the joy that was beyond it, guess what that joy was? It was you. You were what Jesus was looking at as he faced Calvary's cross. The joy of not just, oh, I'll get out of here soon, be back, back to the spa up in heaven in time, you know, for, for a redo. Um, Jesus wasn't rejoicing at the fact that he wouldn't have to put up with the world anymore. The Bible says, I mean, that's utter nonsense. He actually came into the world because the Bible says he loves the world. Jesus loved people. He loved being with us. He loved being around us. He was not driven by a mission. He, he likes you. He loves you. And he wants you with him. He built you to like and love him back. You guys are very compatible, you and Jesus. So, you are the joy set before him. So, I want you to think about this in your own life and your own need to choose what is set before you. Know that someone, someone who gave their life to share the rewards of heaven with you together is waiting for you up ahead. That's a pretty awesome thought when you think about it. When you consider that someone is waiting for me with a life that words cannot describe, imaginations haven't even come up with, the wonders, the glory, and the beauty, and Jesus came here and went through that, went through Calvary in order to have you with him. And so that joy that was set before him is the same joy that is set before you. Your future, your destiny, your fulfillment, your joy is all in Jesus. So keep your eyes focused on esteeming the reward. You may and you will face Calvary's in your life. It's worth it. It's worth it. Embrace it. Go for it. Okay, so next week, uh, we're going to look at step five, six, seven, and eight. And they're doozies. I know it's probably not too theological to refer to important biblical points as doozies, but I just have to tell you, they are really, 
big, 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 big thoughts, big ideas. I, I want to encourage you. This message, I'm just giving it to you in little snippets. This message is way, way bigger than my preaching. You need to take this home, listen to it. The, the video will be available, audio will be available, outlines available, whatever kind of tools you need. But I encourage you to take this message this week and next week home and keep it at your fingertips. Go over it, think about it, realize it. God's put faith in you, um, not just to move an occasional mountain, but to progress forward, to actually inherit His will and purpose in your life. And these eight steps of progressive faith, they're how you get there. They're how you get there. You can gauge your life. You can set and measure your life by this week and next week's message. So I really want to encourage you to do that. If you would, you can close your Bible, um, turn off your device, and stand up with me. We're going to dismiss in a moment, but first we're going to take, some, take a few moments to pray together. You know, <clears throat> we don't pray together after a message because uh, it's next on the agenda. It's what you do. In other words, you can't get out of church until you pray together. You pray together, then you, then you can leave and go to the buffet. But it has nothing to do with that. It's because when you hear the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit's in there, and He might be speaking some things to you. In fact, the Spirit of God may have spoken to you during this message things that I didn't even touch on or allude to, but God spoke them to you. Before you and I take one step out of His presence, not that you're going to leave him here and go somewhere, but out of that collective gathering we call church, the body of Christ, that meeting. It's sacred. The Lord's speaking to us. The prayer we pray in the next moment is important because it's you saying, I accept what I heard. I take hold of what I heard. I am making a serious commitment to take it to heart. And that you must do because God doesn't force feed anybody. So let's pray and let's take a moment to, to choose and lay hold of whatever God has spoken to our hearts this morning. Lord, you are for a very good reason called the life. You are the life. You are our life. And we praise you and we thank you, Father. We thank you, not just because there is a heavenly eternity, though we will spend it here upon the earth that you have made new, but because we will be freed from the impediment of sin. We will be able to be happy in your presence. We'll be surrounded by true life and we'll be living as you have created us to live. And we are excited. We are grateful. You are the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And so this morning, Jesus, in each of our hearts, I pray that you will help us, each one of us, to take whatever points you have emphasized to us today to heart and to walk in them. Make them habits like Kathy's reading chair, Lord. And that we might be people of progressive faith. And in closing, let's close with this idea. Moses was a simple man like you and I. 
And yet Moses' walk of progressive faith led an entire race of people out of slavery. Who knows what you will impact in this life, the good that you will do, the wonderful, glorious effect your life will have on those around you if you will walk in progressive faith. So Lord, we choose that. Like the pilgrims, we're not sure what it's going to look like. We haven't arrived there yet, but we are in our, we're on our voyage and we're in the process. And we choose to be those people that will impact and lift others around us. That is our prayer today, Lord, that, so that our, lights, our lives may glorify you in Jesus' name. And before we sign off and say amen, if there's anybody, un, I say under the sound of my voice because people are watching my video, not only in the sanctuary here, but um, in the privacy of wherever they happen to be at. And so there's people listening who haven't received Jesus Christ into their heart. For whatever reason, that moment has come and it's standing before you right now. All you need to do, he's knocking at that door of your heart, is lift up that gate, just open that door and let Jesus come in. And I'm going to help you do that right now and just offer this simple prayer <clears throat> because it's not a formula, it is simply a heart. These words are designed to help you open your heart and use your will to say, Lord, I acknowledge you as God and I receive you as my Savior. So we're going to do that together. Heavenly Father, my heart, my soul is a gate, a door. I've opened it to many things, but none of them have really changed my life in the way that I believe God can change my life. And so God, I come and I receive Jesus, who is you, come into this world, knocking on the door of my heart. Come in, Lord, and save me and live in me. Bring the Holy Spirit, your spirit, into my life and make me alive in you. I am yours, Lord, and I thank you for loving me in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. So let me dismiss you with a blessing. Just lift up your hands to the Lord. And may the great God, the King of the universe, the Lord of life himself, may he pick up your feet and lead you into his path this week. May he guide you with peace. May the Holy Spirit fill and overflow you. And might the joy of the Lord strengthen and encourage you. And if you encounter trials as you likely will, may grace be there ready to lift you up and get you through it and you let your light shine for others around you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. God bless. Take some time to greet one another and to have some fellowship.